Welcome to the Zachtronics Podcast. Today is a special episode in that I don't have any guests on other than people from Zachtronics. Uh, we are going to talk about advanced Dungeons and Dragons and Dungeons and Dragons. I have no idea what I'm talking about. Um, what are we talking about today? Like, what? what, what is this? <laughs> this is my podcast voice, but it's not like my podcast voice. Like, what... It's a retrospective, right? Like it's a postmortem. It's a postmortem on our experience, but like we're trying to force it through the keyhole of a of like a designer's point of view instead of a player's. Yeah. Okay. We're just interested um, generally in AD and D as well. Okay. Like what What was so, it? Okay. We, we tried. Well, the original thing was we tried to recreate the experience of playing AD and D. Okay. And that afterwards, I think we were, were all pretty sure we failed. Yeah. But we wanted. Oh yeah, we. I, I think it started when I read the thing that said AD and D was nothing like playing D and D today, and we wanted to know what that was like. But it's not in the okay. rule book, so we f- didn't really manage it. Let's open by just saying Gary Gygax was a hack, and we're going to show why everyone that played AD and D was wrong. <laughs> okay, let's try again. Welcome to the Zachtronics podcast. Today, I'm going to talk about Advanced Dungeons and Dragons with my co-hosts from Zachtronics, Keith Holman. Hello. And Jared Levine. Hello. So the backstory here, we should probably start with the backstory. Um, uh, about a year ago, six months ago, we attempted to play uh, some classic Advanced Dungeons and Dragons. I'm not entirely sure why. Um, it was, uh, I guess, a like a historical... Um, why, why, why did we do this? <laughs> <laughs> Curiosity, I think... I don't know what the the impetus was, but yeah. there was definitely like a why did it be? Yeah, I guess this connects to like our, our recent trend at Zactronics of trying to dig back into primary sources. And so I, I'd heard about like from reading things online about what it was like to play Advanced Dungeons and Dragons. And I must have seen something to that effect. And and certainly, you know, we've all seen Stranger Things and, you know, it's, it's a it's a thing that people talk about now. But I, instead of just reading about other people's experiences, wanted to try it for myself. And I guess since we play role-playing games occasionally, that meant dragging you guys into this. Um, and we did it. And so I don't I don't really want to, I mean, obviously this isn't, we're not going to play it right now. It's, this, it's not that kind of D&D podcast. Um, <laughs> and I, I don't really just want to read count our the story of what happened to us when we tried to play it uh, so I, I think that the best way for us to dig into this might be to look at some of the things that seemed like batshit crazy when like looking through the rules for AD&D um, and then kind of trying to figure out like where like why this is in the game and did they keep it in the game I guess for background so so Keith uh, is not from the 70s but has done a lot of research into tra- he was trying to figure out when we did this like what was the authentic experience of playing AD&D in, when it came out in its time uh, and then Jared also played with us but Jared knows a lot more about contemporary D&D um, and role playing games in general and so hopefully if we have any questions about like what's it like now jared will be able to help with that um so i'm going to start with something fun racism tables uh so ad and d has an explicit table that details the ways in which all the different races of the game are racist towards other races in the game is that weird uh it's something that definitely is maintained now to some extent it's not like a strict mechanical relationship chart kind of thing but even in the fifth edition player's handbook there's like a sidebar for every race where they have like little blurbs about how an average member of one race might feel about an average member of the other that's true that's still totally in fifth edition okay is that weird (laughs) well (laughs) i mean they kept it 
it's kind of authentic to fantasy, right? Like, like yeah. Lord of the Rings heavily features some elvish, <laughs> dwarvish uh, anger towards one another. Although, from my understanding, Gary Gygax does not cite Lord of the Rings as inspiration for Dungeons and Dragons. I don't <laughs> Wait, know if that's what, what. What is? <laughs> I don't know if that's bullshit or not. But I, I, that I is, believe that's that he, completely the origin of D anD. I believe he actively resents the comparison. I'm going to do a quick, quick historical background. D&D evolved from tabletop war games, and specifically, do you remember what the game was called? Chainmail. Chainmail? Yeah, Chainmail. uh, Gygax, I think, published a war game where you move little armies of guys around, medieval armies, uh, and then he published a supplement, a fantasy supplement, where you could fight with dragons and heroes and elves and dwarves and things. That was Greyhawk, Uh, right? No, it was called, it was just the fantasy supplement. This was before D&D. Oh. It was a fantasy supplement to a war game. And it had like Balrogs in it uh, to the point where they were sued or threatened by the uh, Tolkien estate. And they had to change <laughs> the names. But uh, then D&D came out of that by getting rid of the more war gamey, army oriented aspects. What kind of war game was it? Like what level? Um, I think it was pretty tactical. I think you usually represented individual units or maybe tens of units at a very okay. large scale. I, th- okay. I think uh, this is where the, this is, this is getting into a whole other part of how AD&D is weird, but the randomly rolling stats, I believe comes from that where you would randomly roll up 20 characters, say if your or, army had like 20 soldiers. Oh, okay. Yeah. So if your army had 20 soldiers in it, you would roll up strength, dexterity, constitution, etc. 20 times. Uh, and this is also why there are stat qualifications for the classes in AD&D, where it says to be a paladin, you have to have 17 charisma and 15 constitution, because that meant that five or 10 or some percent of your randomly rolled up soldiers would could be a actual player class instead of just an anonymous grunt. That's right. And so this was for like, you take your best, your hero characters, like your, your random hero characters from that game, and then like send them on adventures to go get gold. So that way you can have a lot of gold and come back and build your kingdom. Right. They say that in AD&D still, right? Even though at mm-hmm. that point it's like detached from chainmail that the goal of the game is to get a bunch of money so you can have like a dope ass castle and like be in charge right and hire an army I mean, there's definitely an emphasis on amassing a following um, yeah because there are tables in the player's handbook that are dedicated to just followers are those the henchmen or those uh well they, they, there are <laughs> multiple categories there's henchmen hirelings and mercenaries so mm-hmm. okay well this is this goes beyond that um because you would get your, you could like literally just hire hirelings and henchmen and mercenaries. Um, okay. Followers were individuals <laughs> that ch- that chose to follow you. It took, yeah, chose to follow you rather than you are paying them to be in your service. Are, are these these like are people the rules for having like a church. Kind of. Well, yeah. So it would take different forms depending on which class you were. Like the paladin and the cleric would attract like people from the same religious order as them but fighters would attract people that were you know other combat ready individuals um you know if you were a monk you could get people from like a temple but every class had its own follower table that you would sort of reference as you leveled up was this a thing that like people did 
if you listen to to Matt Colville, who has played a lot of like the older versions of D anD D, if if he's to be believed, and I would assume he would be, um, that was sort of like the aspirational thing that players worked towards. Like they did want a castle, they wanted followers, and like they wanted those followers to have their own agendas and not just be people they led into a dungeon to their deaths. Like, they wanted a sense—I think, if I were to read into this, I think they wanted a sense of agency over the fictional world. Okay. Some sources, I said, claim that this is why you get just wagon load—literally wagonfuls of gold from adventures, is because it's intended (laughs) to finance a kingdom and all this maintenance and upkeep and so on. What do you do when you get to that point? Like, are are there just a bunch of people sitting around, like, managing their castles— I think this was the vague idea, and it turned out people were more interested. This this is just a direct quote from one of the sources. Is It turned out people were more interested in the adventures themselves and not using the adventures to fund some sort of castle tycoon game. <laughs> okay, yeah, that makes sense. And that's, I mean, that's certainly where it is now, right? Is that, like, there's no, like, castle having? Uh, well, there's probably right. rules for it somewhere, but... There's not. Not in 5th edition. Whoa, really? Because um, 3rd edition, right, had, like, a whole book about, like, building your own thir- castle? 3rd edition had the paperback uh, Stronghold's Guide of or- <laughs> Strongholds and Followers, I think is what it's called. One of those. But, yeah, the whole idea was it was just a book that listed out like all of the ways you could build a building and it had things of about like your location could change the cost of materials like if you were in an arctic location uh an ice castle would be cheaper um you could expansion you didn't ask for (laughs) you could pick between whether you wanted something to be built uh fast cheap or well like it's pick two um you had things about like well, there was a sidebar about like, well, uh, if you're going to put traps in your castle, you need to make sure that people don't know how to get around them. But you're going to have a bunch of dwarves building your castle, so you're going to need to prepare a bunch of like amnesia spells to make sure that they can't tell anyone what your traps what? are. So that's like classic AD&D like bullshit. I mean, it was 3.5, <laughs> so it wasn't yeah. as bullshit, but yeah. it was in a paperback book. So you know they didn't yeah. believe in it enough to <laughs> like put it in something that would last Okay, so, okay, and it's definitely not a thing now. Definitely not. The person I mentioned, Matt Colville, because he's kind of very nostalgic for that era of Stronghold building, he has recently kickstarted and published a, like, Strongholds and Followers book, which you can you can chuckle. It's It got, like, a million dollars on Kickstarter. Jesus, okay. So, like, there is so clearly it- a following for either his work or just him. <laughs> or castles. Or castles. Sorry, that's what I meant. Yeah, either him or castles. Yeah. One of the two. I see. It's okay. interesting to compare this idea to the modern sort of sandbox or, you know, a game where you do something and there's always a reason for doing it. You're not adventuring for fun. Your adventure, you know, if, if, if it's Terraria, then you're going and collecting loot to build a base and you're building a base so that you can adventure more effectively. And, you know, so everything yeah. sort of forms a cyclical justification for the rest of the game. It's maybe a little bit of an anticipation of that, although it didn't work out for some reason, maybe because doing it manually is too tedious. I think it depends, because I think as a player, it could be like, the stronghold is the goal, and once you have it, there's nothing left. But I think if you had like competent players and a competent GM, you could have a situation where like you've got a stronghold, and now you are a political player, or now you have to defend your stronghold against like rivals. Like it, it's just another mechanism for storytelling. Whatever you think D and D storytelling is, 
Yeah. And I mean, it, it kind of falls in line with the way modern D&D kind of goes, where there's a sort of notion of tiers, where you have like your your tier one characters, and even the old AD&D modules actually had tiers written on the, the module book, but like the idea was tier mm. one was sort of like fledgling adventurers who are going to be fighting like frogs and goblins, uh, maybe an orc, and that's like level essentially like one to seven or so and then you've got your mid-tier guys and they are fighting powerful creatures like weird exotic monsters they're maybe starting to travel to different planes of existence and that's like up to level 14 or so and then you hit this point where the players are so outrageously powerful just mechanically compared to the average character in the world that they are essentially like like gods and the the campaign kind of is forced to switch to this sort of the world is at stake, you are fighting gods, you're preventing the apocalypse kind of role because the mechanics say that that is the only level of stake that matters to your characters. Death becomes irrelevant because if someone dies, you just bring them back with a hunk of diamonds, which you get by like beating the shit out of a tall skeleton. Is that still a problem in D anD D, or not it's worse feature? in in oh, modern D anD D? Well, worse. I, I, not like saying it's a bad thing necessarily, but it's uh, more of a thing. Yeah, it's it's more of a thing, especially because modern D anD D protects you from dying in a really strong way. Um, I so don't in think old D anD D, saves in AD anD D. No, no. In AD anD D, you die the moment you hit zero health, and your health is whatever you roll on your die at the start of the game. And as we saw, you know, you can get a two, you can get a one, and <laughs> if you have a one, then one damage is enough to kill you. Um, but in you know fifth edition D anD D, first you have to drop to zero hit points, and then you have three turns of potentially bleeding out before you die or you become stable. But anyone can stabilize you if you get any healing. You're back in the fight. Um, the the game be- because you're down and you're not a combatant anymore the game kind of provides a really good narrative justification for enemies to leave you alone that might otherwise want to make sure you're dead cuz you don't want to be the guy who like picks on the person who's already down so there's like a weird mechanical and social pressure to keep characters alive and that prevents the death funnel that i think AD&D was built on top of where the god killing was a reward for making a character get to that point but in in 5e there's none of that there's no funnel so you just naturally will get to that point and i think that the game actually kind of falls apart at that level i don't go above level like 12 if i can help it when you're running games yeah interesting i mean so like why why is this why did they change this I mean, losing a character sucks, I think, is the uh, big thing. People didn't seem to think so back in the day, right? Well, people didn't have a choice back in the day. You did what Gary told you to do, or you <laughs> did whatever your DM told you to do. And uh, I think AD&D has a much different perception on the role, like the power dynamic between the player and the dungeon master uh, than like modern contemporary RPG, like all RPGs do. What, what do you mean by that? Uh, I think now there's sort of this understanding that uh, gameplay is collaborative, where your players don't have like narrative authority like you do, but you are supposed to, you know, treat them like they do. You're not special. You're just the person that they like voted to be in charge. Uh, I think in AD&D, there 
and just older RPGs in general, there's this notion of like the DM's word is law. Um, one of the things I have written down in our notes is, um, you know, there there's a division in the rules between the player's handbook and the dungeon master's guide. And something that I think that division does is it makes some parts of the game objective. If something is in the player's handbook, that must be true of all players because they have access to that information no matter what. I did notice that there are a lot of things that would show up in a modern player's handbook that are just completely hidden away like the mechanics like the rules of combat yeah well yeah for one (laughs) the rules of combat like how wizards get their spells uh things like that like things that are fundamental to to playing your character but those things only exist in the dungeon master's guide and i think what that does is it shifts the power into the dm's hands where the you have to like request information from the, the dm um and it also kind of undermines the the notion that this is like a shared experience that you're all participating in and instead creates this idea that like it's ultimately all being filtered through the dm that half of the game comes from them as opposed to they are the arbitrator of it the the player's handbook literally tells you don't look at the dm guide it does yeah they want you to be surprised by what the dm like just everything that they do yeah, and you know, I went today. I went looking online to see what some people thought about that spider fight, which we'll presumably get to <laughs> later. Um, we, we should talk about the spider fight really quickly. Okay. Yeah. So, um, so <laughs> it's literally. I guess it's technically the second combat encounter. So we tw- we played as a Temple of Elemental Evil. Yeah. We technically, thought... we never actually got to the Temple of Elemental Evil. We played the Village of Hamlet. Oh, okay. It's, but it's, it's like, like one series of modules, but we only ever got to the first one. So we, we attempted to play the part of the greater experience that is the Temple of Elemental Evil, which uh-huh. is like the quintessential AD&D module. It's what right? a lot of people said was a good introduction. Yeah, it starts at level one, unlike most of them. So that was helpful. Um, and so we, we got to the first combat encounter, uh, which was like going into not even the temple, but just like a little like... A moat house. Like... A moat house. Yeah, we had to look at what a moat house was. Um, <laughs> this little shitty moat house. And we basically, we go inside. We're really careful. We've got uh, we've got a bunch of 10-foot poles and rope and, like, boys who are carrying it all for <laughs> us because we were really conscious of not going over the weight capacity. It was really weird. Um, we go in and, like, I, I go ahead with a stick as our parties. I was the fighter, right? So yep. I was, like, the, the tank of our party. And I, I poke a stick into a room. And a spider, a giant spider drops down, uh, attacks me, hits me, does poison damage, kills me instantly. Yeah. And so- that was like the first like like combat encounter of the game. Just boom, dead. And on the second and third turns, the remaining two party members died. Also it actually yeah. it wasn't that bad. Um, I think it, Keith got poisoned the next turn, I was right? fatally injured the second turn. I you believe- did manage to hit it once, though. Yes, um, for the, what, one out of 12 health or something? I think, I think two out of 16. Um, <laughs> but then uh, James and the spider just sort of ineffectually slapped at each other for... Oh, yeah, he threw darts at it like a wizard darts. does. Because he only had one spell per day, and, and of course had, you're not going to burn your spell that quickly. And he had burning hands, which does one damage. Yeah. Which is the spell oh, that Oh, yeah, that was his spell. Yep. Yeah. Oh, and he didn't even get to pick it. <laughs> yep. We'll get we I think we can get to that. Uh we can cover that goes back into the division of rules stuff. Um but I want to just add a little more context to the spider fight cuz I think it sort of 
You were out. the DM. Yeah. So you had specifically all of the context, and we had zero. Yeah. So the spider, like, uh, the moat house had a little tower in it, and the spider's in the tower. It's hanging from the top of it, and the idea is it will attack whoever enters the room. Um, the book describes or the module describes how in the floor of this tower there's all these coins but it's also like littered with bones so i I gave that description off and like the players you know bones are a pretty good warning sign yeah so we did go stick first i didn't just run in like an idiot i knew to use the stick Exactly. So there, there's definitely this idea in AD&D of like, you need to use intelligent problem solving to overcome your problems. So and lots of things the, outside of the rules, manipulating yeah. the environment in non-combat ways. So, so 10 foot pole goes in and now I'm off book because the, there's no, <laughs> there's no description of how the spider acts beyond it will attack someone who enters the room. So I was like, ah, yeah, spider would get tricked by a pole or like we'll think that a pole is food. So it drops down and then the group is like, now we're going to pull this thing into the room with us. And again, now I have no fucking clue. How is like, what are the mechanics for this? Does the spider get to resist? Well, there are no like skill checks in AD&D. So... Uh, I have no idea what, like, I could roll for it, if anything, so it's just sort of up to my interpretation. I say, okay, sure, it's reasonable the spider would get pulled into the room. And then it just, it's just a fight. And now it's a fight where it's exactly the same as it would have been if the group had just entered in there, except, like, there's more of an opportunity to run away. But we came here to play AD&D, and I think that if, like, the options the module poses to you are, are do you want to die or do you want to run then as a player you're you lose regardless like you're not playing yeah. to be a coward you want to do cool things that's why you're playing an rpg which is essentially like a power fantasy although at least AD&D for some of the classes definitely had a stronger emphasis on live to fight another day sure yeah, but this was the fights. first fight One thing that comes this up is... over and over is avoiding fights and for sure but this resources. was like the first this was the first fight in the first module uh, for something that's meant to be designed for a bunch of first level characters. Now, granted, it was supposed to be like nine first level characters and not three. Um, <laughs> that but was like, one thing we, were... we had some trouble nailing down is how many. I, I think in this yeah. area, it's not even. Um, nowadays, the conventions you play one character. Yes. One player yeah. has one character. Uh, but this is closer to the wargaming time. I found some suggestions that you might have two or three or an army. I I've heard that net you would you would have like four people and each one would play two uh at least for this particular module and I don't know it's easy to look at I think the spider fight in particular and say well you could you could run and live to fight another day but every other encounter in that module at least the ones that I looked at and I looked at all the ones that you guys would have or could have run into other than the spider fight they were all pretty equally brutal uh you know this but I'm going to describe it for the audience there is a 50% chance as you cross the drawbridge leading into the moat house that you are essentially ambushed by frogs giant frogs big frogs big frogs big frogs not not tiny little frogs there's six of them and (laughs) they I mean, they hit hard. They will have. They would a, have killed us all. They would have killed you all in the first open, in like the opening volley. And if you had been eight people, maybe you would have gotten one or two. But just like the math was not in your favor. I think it's actually a lie that Hamlet is designed for first level players. I think 
Uh, it's a module where the Temple of Elemental Evil is rated for like one to eight. Uh, Hamlet is rated for one to four, I believe. But I think the idea was you were going into it with a range of characters or, and this was the other thing, um, ties back to what I was talking to you guys about before. You didn't have any of the NPCs with you. And there were tons of NPCs in town that could have potentially been persuaded to join in with you guys. And you could have been like, all right, you go in the room with the spider. But uh, it didn't seem engaging to go after any of them. And, it just uh, didn't even register as like a possibility, right? Yeah, I don't. I I think that yeah, that definitely the the thing that we confronted the most was probably our own expectations of what D and D ought to be, which perhaps has changed, right? And that's some, something that Keith was sort of getting into with doing the research of like, you know, what are the rules versus how did people actually play, mm-hmm. and that like we can go back and read these rules from forty years ago, and we can still read them and understand them and try to play them, but like. If that's not really how people were playing, like that gets lost to a degree. One thing that I'm not too sure about, but Jared sort of touched on it with the once uh, in in the module, it says the spider attacks anyone who enters the room and nothing beyond that. And there just aren't any applicable rules to decide what happens aside from that. Not even rules, like no description on behavior, like what this creature wants. I mean, it's a spider, so it can't be too complex. But like the, the game really expects that like a simple stat block and the name giant spider is like sufficient for you right so i think you know given that what we have are rule books and not people there might be you know there, there are lots of things that don't have rules for them and it could be that 95 percent of D was not about rules written on paper and some things are and but we've focused 100 percent of our attention on what is documented on paper and maybe uh, a lot of it was narrative or ad-libbed or that kind just of seemed stuff to be the case down. from what you found, right? You were describing lots of things where people said like, oh, like it's this really creative game where like it's up to the DM to interpret all of these things mm-hmm. and like really like take the story in their own hands and do it, which you wouldn't really get just from reading a rule book. A rule book is meant to sound authoritative. Right. If that's the case, then the stuff that's in the rule book, especially the, the DM's rule book, is for the exceptional cases when something is systematic. But maybe that's a rarity rather than something that applies all the time as it does in modern D&D. There's a rule for everything. You, you know, there are skills to catch things that aren't combat, etc. I kind of disagree with that, actually, because... I think uh, 5th edition in particular does really heavily embrace the idea that the players will do things that are not supported by the rules. Uh, And what 5th edition does to make up for that is they have a couple of really base mechanics that are universal enough that you can sort of apply them as necessary to create sort of like a heuristically appropriate effect. That's what advantage is for and disadvantage. You roll 2d20 and uh, use the highest one, and you can just say... On anything, oh, if you're doing that, that gives you advantage on the roll. AD&D doesn't have any mechanism in in the book to support the idea that the GM can make arbitrary uh, rulings that matter. Things are, are just sort of, they either do or don't happen. Right. So one thing that is pretty well documented is the idea of traps and dungeons. And usually mm-hmm. people describe it as... The, the rule book will say something like, oh, there's a pressure plate in the floor, but it's hidden under a carpet. And so to find it, you don't roll a trap check or you don't look try to get advantage on anything. The players have to narrate to the DM a plan that would uncover it as described. So there is there are no uh, mechanics. It is completely player skill, I guess, is the best way to put it. 
Well, there are no mechanics, but traps themselves are a description of a mechanism, and I think that's why they're more easily lent to uh, turning into like an all-or-nothing thing. Because if I say there's a lever, and if you and if you pull the lever, like a sword comes out and chops into you, like you can immediately understand how it means to interact with that thing, mm-hmm. and you can boil down interaction with that thing into like it either works or it doesn't. Uh, similarly, you either do or you don't step on the pressure plate. But, I I mean, if a character is running down a room and the pressure plate doesn't take up, like, a big part of it, maybe there needs to be some sort of randomness to see if they actually hit it. Or maybe they just hit it because it's more interesting for them to trigger a trap when they're being reckless than not. But I do think that traps are an exception to to that, and I think that traps do lend themselves well to AD&D's design in a way that they actually don't to 5th edition. But conversely, I think that 5th edition allows you to do a lot of things that aren't trap-finding that are interesting um, that AD&D does not let you do. So I'll give an example of something that I read that was like this, but uh, not traps. So there was a page, I don't remember what it was called, but it was basically trying to teach people the old-school way of doing D&D as compared to the new, uh, let's say, 5th edition way. Mm -hmm. And his example was, you're in combat and you're standing on a ledge, and you tell the DM, I want to leap off this ledge, you know, point my sword down and stab the orc below me with it. And the 3.5 edition or modern edition says, there's no rule for that. We'll just call it a regular standard attack. Uh, or now you would just have advantage. Uh, sure. Maybe you'd have advantage. Uh, he said, and I'm hoping that he has actual firsthand AD&D experience, that the expectation in AD&D is there doesn't have to be a rule. The rules are there if basically as a backup to the DM instead of the other way around. The DM just says, okay, I'll give you 1d6, you know, extra damage on that. And you'll be prone afterwards or something. I, I don't see a meaningful distinction between saying that you'll have advantage on the attack or saying you'll do more damage, but you'll be prone. My, the point is the point is that the, the DM is expected just implicitly to make up stuff. Right, but the same thing would happen in 5th edition. You'd like The player would say, how about this? And then I would let them know what I think about that. And I think that's it's the same experience. You might have in 3.5, which is definitely more uh, crunchy in how it's written out. I think it was comparing to 3.5, and I think the, the DMing experience was more uh, straight-jacketed. Yeah, in 3.5, like, grappling, you know, took up a whole page just to describe how to hold someone down. And there was uh, probably no <laughs> expectation that you would go outside of those rules. There was an attempt to be really right. comprehensive in the rules. So maybe, maybe they've actually gone back a little bit. A little bit. I do think so. To that sort of more like narrative focus. Or I guess it's not, I don't really think narrative is the appropriate word for the, the super old school stuff because I don't think people are thinking about it in terms like that. But just like the, the creative, like f- just kind of winging it approach. I th- yeah. So so th- this didn't occur to me at the time. It didn't occur to me until now. But going back to the, the spider encounter, uh, I wonder if we fell into a very modern RPG way of thinking when the spider appears and, you know, we drag it out of the room and it immediately goes on a suicidal kill everything as quickly as possible, DPS, etc., etc. Whereas if you think of what you would have in a movie, if it's early on in the movie and you're going into the scary castle, what do you do? You probably show something scary and then it scuttles off into the darkness to set up your you know, atmosphere of foreboding. Or it grabs one person and hauls them away, or something like that, rather than in you know your computer RPG philosophy where everything is a fight to the death. The frogs definitely were like, they will attack the players. 
like I don't think uh I don't I I agree with that from a storytelling point of view like I think that that would be better um but I don't think that the module as written really supports that idea I do think that DMing is not a transferable skill to AD&D the way it typically is between like different systems. I think what actually is the real skill that you perfect when you run AD&D multiple times is you learn the module inside and out and you learn how to make the module be the best experience that it can be. Because I think that if we had run this again, and I had spent more time learning about the village of Hamlet and all the people in it and stuff, you know, I could have said to myself, they're leaving the village, they're going to the moat house, but they're woefully unprepared. I'll send this guy, this, this is a plucky NPC with something to prove. I'll send him with them and make him go with them, even though they might not want him there. Because now I know what is necessary to keep you guys having a good time. And I don't think the module has that written in it, but I think it has all the potential to enable that kind of experience. Well, this is kind of what I'm getting at, the idea that uh, without... So in a modern in a modern D&D module, I would totally expect there to be examples of, you know, because it's a, a well-designed game of trying to help the players and trying to give the DM prompts about, oh, here's what you should do you know, in in this case. But I think that might have just been unspoken in this era, that the DM can do whatever they want to do, like have the spider retreat after you pull it out of the room for basically no reason and not only because you feel it's narratively appropriate. And there's no need to put a reminder in that a spider can scuttle away instead of attacking you. Well, so... <laughs> they told you it's a spider. What else do you need to know? <laughs> it's in the stat block. <laughs> so whenever I, I play modern D&D and I run uh, animals as monster encounters, um, you know, those stat blocks don't say the monster runs. But I do have a notion of when the creature realizes it's losing, it will try and run. Unless it's like something mindless, like a skeleton or something. Um, <laughs> certainly, the same thing totally would have happened with this spider. If you had gotten this spider low on health, it would have run. But you did two damage of 16, and like, it was killing you left and right. So it didn't have the only reason it would have had to leave was not an authentic, a reason authentic to the creature, but a reason that serves a tension-building narrative, which is not something the game ever poses to you as something that you should be trying to achieve. Well, I think this might be part of the how it's, how it's badly written. I bet players at the time had some sort of idea of what the experience was supposed to be like, and I bet they forgot to put it in the manual. <laughs> So I want to I want to channel that that topic like so what what does it mean if we are unable or I mean like even now we've discussed the shit out of this like today and previously mm -hmm. and it doesn't really seem like we absolutely know what we did wrong right or if we did stuff wrong at all or if that's just like within the variance of how this is supposed to go we have no idea how close we got to the original experience exactly so what does it mean when we have this game that's not even that old and we just have no idea if we're even playing it right or like like, like, how could we just not know, right? Like, what is that? We only have a that tiny fraction like? of the information. We don't have recorded sessions. The rules are very probably not comprehensive. There's probably a ton that's left uns unsaid. Is that, I mean, I guess with like computer games, that's less of a problem because the computer game presents an experience that's like the whole experience is presented like authoritatively to you. Mm -hmm. Well, to, I guess. to be fair, we did decide to play first edition AD&D. Mm -hmm. um, there is a second edition. And I 
I am under the impression that the second edition book, first off, is just, like, written way better. Like, everything is organized in a much more coherent way. Uh, and I saw, like, the stat block for the spider in second edition, like, in the second edition version of the Village of Hamlet. And in that one, the poison doesn't instantly kill you. All it says in the first edition is that it poisons you. There is no other mention of what poison does, which to me is more evidence of if everything is just left to the DM. No, 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 no. That's not left to the DM. In the Dungeon Master's Guide, ah. it describes that poison instantly kills you if you don't <laughs> save against it in one turn, which represents one minute of time. It's how fast all poison works. And as another thing, to those who may not be familiar with uh, old D&D, you didn't, you didn't have like a saving throw that you made and then added like your constitution bonus to and then maybe your proficiency bonus or whatever. You weren't trying to hit a target number by rolling a die and, and adding bonuses. You had a table based on what class you were and you just like, oh, I'm saving against poison. Let me check what level I am. And that's the number I need to roll on the die to save against the poison. And at level one, that number is like 14 for the fighter. Uh, now, granted, the spider gives you a plus one in your roll because it's not particularly strong poison, I guess. But, you know, if you get hit, you have a 65% chance of dying right then and there. Well, in a minute from then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that is totally like how it is written. Granted, I had to go track that down. There was nothing in the spider stat block that told you poison. I think we was had to look lethal. up on Stack Overflow. At for, first, like, and then I, I did manage to find it in the DM's guide eventually. Um, but yeah, in in second edition, the spider's poison does not instantly kill you. It uh deals a bunch of damage over a period of time. Like poison now has uh onset and like duration and it's not just instantly lethal i think it was probably still lethal it just wasn't instantly lethal Interesting. but but at the very least there was like clearly second edition tried to improve on things i didn't look at it closely enough in depth so i can't really speak to it with any real authority but i think they knew they didn't do a good job that's why we have new editions because they like yeah. wanted to improve on what they had made I think there's a combination of, of doing a better job of explaining the game, but also the design and philosophy changed. Sure, yeah. Uh, I mean, 3.5 is a pretty big departure um, from 2nd edition AD&D. There might be more editions in between those two. I'm not. Well, obviously there's 3rd edition, but uh, I'm not sure if there's anything else. There's also, like, there's the basic edition, and there's a bunch of, like, variants on AD&D that aren't exactly, like, proper successors. Uh, there's a whole lot of ways to play, and I don't know if any of them are good, but there's still, like, a modern following around some of them. That's, like, what OSR is all about. Oh, yeah. People trying to recreate the experience without going back to the original materials. Right. And just so they'll create just a new take... experience. Well, they'll take, like, the old modules, and, like, the idea of an OSR-compatible game is a game where you don't have to rewrite any of the old content. You just run it, and the mechanics support all of the stats that are in there. I read a lot of OSR-type stuff as part of my research because a lot of it is interested in this, how were things done uh, back mm -hmm. then and what, what was the philosophy. Yeah, like, what, what's the modern philosophy of, like, a contemporary OSR? Like, what, what do they think defines this era? I, I think the biggest thing that I see repeated is the idea that OSR um, challenges the player and not the character. Oh, interesting. Like, with the puzzle bullshit? Like, Well, and not puzzle bullshit, but, like, what you guys try to do with, like, careful 10-foot polling. Pole, don't fight the spider. Or maybe, like, oh, we're fighting a giant slug. Well, I'll sprinkle it with salt or something like that. Like, attempt, an attempt to grok 
the fictional world and exploit your understanding of it. Uh, I have no idea if that actually holds up in practice. I would be interested in trying like a proper modern OSR game, but I think there was this there's this ideal world in which you are you're accomplishing things not because your character sheet says so, but because you're saying so. Yeah, and that seemed to be like a large part of how the books described the AD&D experience. Is that f- they, they wanted well, you to yeah. be intelligent and use your intelligence to figure your way through these situations. Yeah, so that's that's what I find so troubling is that like that seemed to be what everything was pointing you towards. But then when you actually got to one of these fucking dungeons, it's just death at every turn. There was maybe no... we just weren't intelligent enough. <laughs> but there was no good path. There was no world in which you took all the right turns and noticed all the clues and that brought you to like the gold without having to fight anyone. Every single doorway you could have gone through led to an encounter. Maybe I'll get somebody emailing me and be like, actually, you oh, can I'm sure set you will. fire to the, the, the bones yeah. and that will create an inferno that will smoke <laughs> the spider out of his tower. Well, if you, uh, if you wait until winter, the boat will freeze and you can cross through the back of it <laughs> through a hidden entrance where Golgafax lives. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, I'm gonna stop talking about the spider tower. Yeah, yeah, okay we, we, we yeah, we stuck stuck on it for a long, a long time. I was going to say uh, one of the other notes we have that's weird in D and D that relates to what I've read about the OSR experience is the one gold gives you one XP. Oh yeah, I never really was. We, we didn't get any gold or experience, nope. so I wasn't really that you spent keen on gold. how that worked. So uh, <laughs> the reason I mention it is because one of the rather mechanical things that osr people will mention as being traditional from the ad and d era is the idea that you're put in a dungeon and instead of it being a computer rpg style series of linear encounters uh the idea is it's a maze and there's gold in the maze and the challenge to the players is get as much of the gold as you can while expending as few resources as you can usually meaning get in as few fights as possible whereas now Mm -hmm in the world of world of warcraft uh you fight everything you can because xp is what you want and you get xp from fighting not from extracting treasure so basically ad and d dungeons were puzzle boxes where the gold is the only is what you're rewarded for and if you avoid fights that's just being smart yeah this is actually why in my sessions of 5e I've moved away from like XP entirely players just level up when i feel like it's narratively appropriate to for them to have Here's a question. Mm-hmm. Why was XP in Advanced Dungeons and Dragons? Did they steal it from somewhere or did they invent it? There were some mentions about one of the, the really compelling things about Indianity was the progression. I don't know that there were very many other anything at that time that had level progressions like that. What else would they do? They do define that? what they mean by level in the beginning. <laughs> They're right. like, when we say level in this book, we mean one of four different things. Right. <laughs> like, was there anything with characters that leveled up before D&D? What could there be? Uh, there are no computer in games. Checkers, in Checkers, if you get your piece yeah, to the end of the board. That's probably not their get... inspiration. Uh, I mean... Well, who the fuck knows, right? I mean, like, maybe... <laughs> yeah. Okay. So apparently... David Arneson invented the experience point system and leveling up what? while work while working on a precursor to Dungeons and Dragons called Blackmore with Gary Gygax. Oh, yeah, I saw Dave. That name. Yeah. This is according to factmyth.com. Wait, is this fact or myth? I think the the myth was that Dungeons and Dragons invented it, but it oh. was invented by the predecessor to it. Well, Dave Arneson is for for what it's worth considered like the other dad of D&D. 
Oh, it has two dads. That's cute. <laughs> I don't know if they super got along later, uh, like Stanley and Jack Kirby, those guys. Mm. Um, but there definitely was a time where they were collaborating, if not outright, just working together. Here's the, 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 the described thing. According to Lore, Arneson came up with the idea of leveling up while playtesting a game he co-created with Gygax called Chainmail. The playtesting group was having fun and didn't want it to end. And so he came up with the idea to have experience points so that they could keep playing and have like a, a sense of like something going on between sessions. Hey kids, do you want to do this for the next year and a half? <laughs> yeah! Yeah, okay. So, well, there you go. Um... Yeah, I honestly, yeah, it's it's 2019. Like every game imaginable has XP in it. And <laughs> it's shocking that it took everybody so long to realize that it's like the, the, the perfect game mechanic. I had a fitness app with XP. So, I mean, it is everywhere. <laughs> um, okay, so some random other things that are weird in D&D. &D. Mm -hmm. It is probable your DM will keep a graph of your alignment over the course of the campaign. Uh, they had the exact same alignment system that is, has been traditional for D&D. &D. I, I think they've sort of softened it up a little bit very recently no one's graphing it right like no well not that part but it is good and what is it good and evil and lawful yeah, and chaotic good and evil and then lawful and chaotic that's not how it used to be actually in um, AD&D in AD&D it might still have been but originally in D&D it was just lawful and chaotic there was no good and evil Oh, interesting. Which, um, I think I think it was lawful and unlawful were the were the options um, what but yeah modern D&D &D, uh, this was I think like like OD&D? Okay. Uh, yeah, I, I can go look it up, but I, you're going to hear clattering noises. No, don't but in, uh, in modern D&D, there's still the alignment system in that it is there, but they've basically like put it in a shoebox and shoved it under the, the stairwell because no one cares about it. No one likes it. It's like you like a pick what you are. You and then pick the, what you just, are, you just say, and, but it's and then like you role horrible, play whatever you want. <laughs> yeah, it's a horrible holdover, and no one gives a shit about it. And even in three point five, they didn't give a shit about it. But back then, it didn't matter. I yeah. I think one of the best examples that showcases like the change in design philosophy is if you look at the spell detect good and evil. Um, back in three point five, they were separate spells. They were detect good, detect evil, and then there was like detect law and detect chaos. Um, and for the average <laughs> person, they didn't register anything because the average person wasn't uh, like a powerful enough like representative of this <laughs> philosophy. Not a big of enough dick. <laughs> well, no, it's really like that's what it is. Uh, but like paladins would show up as their thing. Necromancers would show up. Like the follower of an evil god would show up. Uh, in 5th edition, Detect Evil and Good is one spell, and it lets you know about nearby, like, Celestials, Fiends, Elemental, Fey, and some other nonsense. They don't care about alignment anymore, uh, and I think it's because... It's used they... more like a creature type or something like that. Well, it's a, I think it only exists now because it existed before, but I think it's important to acknowledge that the reason it existed before was because of, like, essentially religious influences on the game. The Gary Gygax pretty much invented, like, the paladin as a gaming archetype because it's the paladin represents, like, a crusader. That's, that's very, uh, very theistic. Like, he follows an ideal and he is empowered by his god. Now, uh, the paladin literally gets their powers from belief in an ideal itself. Like, the, the paladin that believes in justice gains powers <laughs> from, like, a fervent devotion to justice. I, 
I was shocked by in 5e, like how generic all this stuff is. They're like, paladins are people who believe in something. And then there's like, <laughs> it lists like 20 different, there's like the cheeseburger paladin who really believes in cheeseburgers and draws strength from One it. One thing I really like in, in older editions, you, you get some of it in 3.5 and a lot of it when you go earlier than that is the, uh, you know, there's like the Christian theological stuff of the just enumerating angels and like enumerating circles of hell. And it's just really detailed. Yeah. And there are like 7,000 yeah. demon princes, each named and given a domain and so on, which you see a little bit with the, some in certain editions of D and D there'll be like lists of gods and their domains and that sort of thing. I mean, I have Mordenkainen's Tome of Foes and it has a bunch of like slightly <laughs> off brand demons in it. <laughs> Beazel Bob. <laughs> you're joking but like yeah like that i'm pretty sure i can go grab it right now if we want to just like look at some names real quick nope. no no <laughs> but uh, we're gonna get sued by wizards yeah, I, I, I always thought that was that was interesting it's very um i don't know a very structured kind of theology a structured and complicated theology yeah i think it's interesting because uh D has like a an ultimately like a pretty pro-theist slant and yet it was like another one of the victims of the... Yeah, they had to make it more Christian-friendly in the second edition, right? Yeah, yeah. so was... that's in second edition, they got rid of like the demons and the devils and they replaced them with more generic things. Just like how magic got rid of demons mm -hmm. and they replaced them with horrors. Okay, so another weird thing. Alignment tongues? <laughs> <laughs> I... What is it's like every every perm, I guess this is connected to alignments that every permutation of alignments no what is it oh fuck what is it it's it's like evil people know a special language that only evil people know right I think each each alignment has an alignment tongue like there's a good and an evil and a lawful chaotic and, and yeah. a chaotic I'm not sure whether there are what four or mean? eight I don't I don't think they're I don't think they are in combination. I think they're just one for each, like, end of each axis. It does sort of persist to modern D&D uh, &D in the form of you have celestial and hellish languages. Yes. Which I think is the same idea. Does everybody speak them, though? Uh, is, that I don't it know. It is associated with your alignment. But I think kind of like Jared was saying, although in reverse, it's for beings that are sufficiently uh, Evil. Yeah, devoted to the cause. Yeah. Not just anybody who's slightly benevolent. Something I wanted to kind of get at before when you're talking about alignment is like, it does seem like the notion of alignment was supposed to depict something a lot more fundamental than than merely personality. If you were a lawfully aligned creature, that was like something inherent to you as an individual. It was not like, well, I'm just a little uptight and maybe I like bureaucracy a little too much. <laughs> it was like a fundamental statement about who you were. Or about, like, your place in the grand cosmology. And pretty often it seemed to map to being a follower of a specific deity. It yeah. was like a, a feudal obligation, not just a personality. Everybody knows the language of their way of well, life. if you're French-aligned, you know French, and if you're... <laughs> <laughs> I'm lawful European. <laughs> yeah, okay, so that was weird. Um... Was that supposed to like come up when you're playing? Like, why is that even in the game? It could. Uh, it could mean that uh, you know, if you were you were going to go to the temple of elemental evil, maybe some of the creatures there would just speak evil to each other because they'd assume that adventurers would not know that language. But if one of you guys was secretly a dick, you would e be able to eavesdrop on them and take advantage of that. Wasn't that weird that because they have language also as a thing? But like, so like you could go through all the effort to learn somebody else's language. 
or find a translator, or you could just find like a common like, oh, we're both good. <laughs> a so common we can talk philosophy. To each other. Yeah, we, we both exactly. believe in existentialism. Yeah, so therefore we can perfectly understand each other. Mm-hmm. Like that, I I just don't. I don't yeah, know. I don't understand the significance either. It also does sort of imply that alignment uh, is part of like a, a an ordered thing, even if you're chaotic. Like if you are good, you are not just a good person. You participate in like good culture. <laughs> you went to good school when you were a kid. <laughs> yeah. Is it supposed On to be Saturdays? like Latin or evil Latin? <laughs> Maybe. So evil. what's the, evil Latin? Like? The only equivalence I can think of in, in modern D&D is that there's thieves can't if you're a rogue, which is a thing uh, that all rogues know. And it's basically true of all the classes. No, it's true. Okay. of. I, I was just going to bring two examples up. Thieves can't. And then uh, druids know Sylvan, which is like the uh, language of the fae and like the trees. <laughs> If you want to play the Lorax, play a druid. I think 5th edition, there's actually a druidic language, which is even more similar to... Oh. Oh, yes. Sylvan is the language of of the fae and, and the trees, but then there's also druidic, which is like the secret language that only druids know. Mm-hmm. Like, why is that in there? Uh, I think it was just to sort of reinforce like the mystique of the class and like the role mm-hmm. that they occupy in the world. It's There's a lot of stuff in these that's just for flavor or at the very least like it's a niche thing that won't come up very often i think that's true of basically every language choice in the game because most things know common that is why it is called common (laughs) it may be a way of reinforcing that things that are like you you can interact with in a like a social civilized way and things that are unlike you you can only interact with by violence yeah, it is actually almost a, like saying that a creature doesn't understand common is almost a way to tell a player that like this is not a character, this is an enemy. Um, is that weird? I think so because I I had you know I, I've played the organized like Pathfinder League a couple of times. Yeah, a Pathfinder Society rather, and I played a character that just happened to speak a language that like a clearly planned combat encounter was like new. And it really threw the DM. They didn't expect someone to have that language. And they didn't, there was nothing prepared for them to handle that situation, even though Pathfinder Society is all about everything's planned out and the GM like has a rubric they have to follow. It just uh, like wasn't even a fathomable thing that you'd try to talk to. Yeah, like to why would monsters? you know Undercommon? Why would you know the <laughs> language of these fucking pixie things that are following? They're going to fight you, but now they can't. I got I got a lot of angry eyes from my fellow players when that happened. They got bored because I was talking to these like <laughs> fake creatures and they wanted to fight them. Okay. Um, I have one more thing that I wrote down, which I wrote down when we were reading the rules before we played, which is you must name your character and should name a next of kin should they meet an <laughs> untimely death, which I thought was dumb, except now that we've played, like... That genuinely could be part of the game, right? For I know sure. That people, people would they would lose their characters, and it's not like they're going to stop playing like the campaign. Like you just roll up another character to replace that other character. It's your nephew come to avenge you. Yeah. Erase how much damage you've taken, and just say, "Well, this is another half orc fighter. Yeah. He, they were twins, and if he dies, they were triplets." <laughs> yeah. Right. I guess it's not even a weird thing. That's just like, yeah, sure. It's funny because I've I've actually seen the opposite. A mentality among people which is that you shouldn't even bother naming your character until they get to like level two. Oh, that's so sad yeah <laughs> <laughs> um 
there was one little bit of trivia. Uh, oh, no, this is... Okay, I've got a couple more things. Um, there's a snippet in the rules about how some stats are grounded in real life, that your strength is the number of... Like, your strength times 10 is the number of pounds that your character can military press. <laughs> like a chest press, like, straight up over their head. They've kind like, of kept that. There's uh, 15 times your strength score is how much you can lift. Oh, That's okay. like your carrying capacity in 5e. They, they also allude to your intelligence being, like, connected to your IQ. Mm-hmm. They don't allude. They say it outright. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't sure. <laughs> they say something like, uh, I'm not sure if they give a conversion rate, but they come close. I think if you ask literally anyone who plays D&D to describe their intelligence as like their D&D intelligence stat, they will almost always say 14. That is my <laughs> hypothesis. Everyone will say 14. It's like how everybody's IQ is over 100. Uh-huh. Because 14 is like, in modern D&D, it's like, it's a plus two bonus. It's high, but it's not like as high as it could be. Okay, um, and the, uh, then the other thing that I want to talk, we were talking before about, um, like, DMs, like, just, uh, like, that the DM was expected just to come up with everything that wasn't covered in the rules, mm-hmm. which I would believe, except for the fact that there's a whole page of tables about fighters prying open metal bars, <laughs> kicking, d- kicking down doors, and doing stuff like that, and then it has explicit rules that you can try to kick down the door once, and if you fail, you can try to bend the bars once, and everybody gets one shot. And it's like there's specific tables for based on like your your strength and level or whatever as a fighter. These are your chances of opening like just kicking down this door. And this is really strange because AD&D doesn't have the skills that you have in modern D&D. Nope. And in general has very few numerical abilities beyond the basic six ability scores. But each of the classes has maybe one to three incredibly narrow skills. Yeah. I mean, that's got to just be bad game design, right? I, I think know. so. I mean, I think the skill the skill system is a definite improvement, right? Like, it, it lets you say, my character is good at things that are not just fighting. And right now, well, not right now, but in AD&D, there wasn't really anything other than combat. But again, I want to qualify this with, that's the only thing in the rules written on paper. But that is the game, like, looking back at it. I realized well, that there was a culture maybe not, surrounding though. it. Right? I mean, like, maybe, like, I think there's definitely cases now even where people, like, take a game and they don't play the game, like, in the way it's meant to be played necessarily, but, like, they make something good out of it. I guess there is something to be said about, like, how in Monopoly there's nothing in the rules that says to put money on free parking. Oh, yeah, right? And, like, yeah. If if you if you somehow wiped everybody's history of Monopoly and then went fifty years in the future and gave them a copy of Monopoly, they would just play according to the rules. Yeah, they would have so no idea. I I think that's fair. I would say that it's maybe still a critique on the game design that like they like the audience had to turn it into something good. And that so much it's definitely a a, a design or at least writing flaw that yeah. that they did not put enough information in. I don't think they wrote everything down. Yeah, I mean, it's possible that even Gary Gygax didn't run D&D the way he wrote D&D. In fact, it's almost definitely likely. There's not even enough information in there to run the game at all. Right, yeah. And this is, again, why I think that the real skill is to just know how to run a module, because I think yeah. you can just get good at that. That would have helped, certainly. Um, are there any other topics you guys want to talk about? Uh, my, Bonus points if they're my weird. My favorite things are the uh, the inheritances from war games. Uh, hit points is a prominent example. So in most war games, such as 40k, if you, you if you attack a squad, say, and you get three hits, then you take you remove three figures from the board. One hit, you know, effectively every unit has one hit point. You like so three hits is three Space Marines off the board. Uh, in 
both in modern war games and in chainmail, heroic units might have two or three or four hit points. This is still in modern 40k, uh, right? Uh, I mean, in 40k, things definitely have more than one health. The co- common units don't, right? You start at one. Uh, it depends on what you call a common unit, but like, yeah, like, like an infantry, an in- space marine has one, uh, guardsman has one, but like a terminator, which is just a space marine in, in bulky armor, has two. Right. But that's a, on a completely different scale than D&D, which is tens and twenties, and computer games, yes. which is thousands, hundreds or thousands. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So in Chainmail, yeah. when they added the fantasy supplement, heroes had two HP and superheroes had four HP. And there were some kind of rules like you had to simultaneously score two hits uh, to kill it. And uh, you can still see that in AD&D, where the hit point totals definitely start at one and for a first level character the best you can hope for is maybe eight or ten even even your wizards in uh modern dnd i think start with about six you know the idea of having a character that starts with one or two hp total is crazy until you think of it from a war game perspective which is the default oh yeah for sure i, I mean it's not good but you can see where it came from yes and i think that uh looking at just like the reliance of tables in AD&D, you can also see it's like wargaming roots. Um, oh, yeah. Because that's oh, also... Oh, yeah, so many tables. Yeah, so... Combat resolution tables. Oh, God. Yeah, so specifically <laughs> so many tables that describe very specific interactions where, like, Thaco is a description of a table, even though the table isn't actually there, where no armor is AC, I think, I think it's 10, and then it gets better as you go down. Mm-hmm. And each um, each AC class or each armor class, I should say, represents a specific kind of armor. It's not yep. merely numerically one better. It's you know this is leather armor, this is studded leather armor, this is padded thatched leather specific armor. specific kind of armor, and then with or without a shield. Mm-hmm. So like AC one is like plate mail, and then AC zero is like plate mail with a shield. The, the, those tables were per class too, right? So I never had to. I mean, that was one of the things that was hidden from players in AD and D is the like the combat resolution. Yeah, yeah there was table. A, there was a combat matrix table thing where yeah, a level one fighter needs to roll a certain number to hit an AC something enemy. Like it's a it's like a two dimensional table where you have to cross reference your level with the enemy's AC, and then the <laughs> weapon that you are using can have a different modifier depending on the AC of your target. This is something I wanted to talk about. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so normally weapons don't really affect what you're doing, but like a pitchfork, for example, would uh, have a better chance of hitting someone that's wearing like leather or no armor, but it would have a worse chance of hitting someone wearing anything sturdy, like anything made of metal. Right, so there's a bit of a damage types baked into the armor class tables. Yeah, which is actually, I kind of really like that. Something that I think is missing from 5th edition is the idea that all, like, heavy armor just sort of is better than everything else. Um, But I really like the idea of there being some sort of mail breaker, like something that can pierce heavy armor. That armor doesn't just linearly improve, that there are trade-offs. Yeah, yeah. In 3.5, you, like... If you wore heavy armor as a mage, you couldn't really cast it very well, and that was sort of the only real limitation around it. Also, it would make you really bad at, like, jumping and climbing, and especially swimming. Um, (laughs) But now it's just sort of like uh, you can wear any armor you qualify for, and it doesn't hurt you, except sometimes it makes you bad at stealth. Interesting. 
Okay. Well, hold on. We need we need to have a sign off. Okay. So, uh, Jared, do you want to invent a uh, a sign off for this episode? Uh, you you really sprung that on me at the last moment. Uh, make sure that your next D and D session is a critical hit. Oh, that's good. Okay. See you guys. See ya. <laughs>